Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. If you're not familiar with the Bible, when I say Acts 21, I mean one of the 66 books contained in God's inspired word, as we trust and believe it is, as he's given it to us. The book of Acts was written uh, after Jesus' coming and going by those who saw him and knew him. And his work testifies to what he did through his followers. So that's where we're going to be this morning in Acts as we've been the last several weeks. And 21, Acts 21, that's just the big bold number that has been put in there later after it was written to help us know how to find places in our Bible. So that's where we're going to be, Acts 21 and 22. If you need to find it on your Blue Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 930. 930. We're actually going to seek to cover Acts 21 and 22 this morning. So having it open in front of you will be helpful to you because we'll be reading a lot of text. We've been listening to the author who wrote Acts, Luke, who traveled with Paul, catalog the Apostle Paul's various missionary travels as he sought to take the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. From this point forward, as we finish out this book, hopefully by the end of the year, we're going to feel the narrative slow down considerably. The pace has been quick. Now it will come not to a halt, but slow down. Most of the remainder of this book is going to follow Paul through a prolonged trial that begins in Acts 21 in the city of Jerusalem and culminates after Acts 28 is over with a trial before Caesar in Rome. I must say that as I've studied this passage, I do not know all the reasons that Luke has chosen to focus this much time and extended time on Paul's final trial. But anytime we come to God's word and have questions or realize our limits and limitations, it's a good opportunity for us to think on and ask for God's help in our study of these remaining chapters. One thing is clear. The New Testament portrays this man, Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a key figure in God's story. Perhaps the most notable follower of Jesus Christ. He serves as a primary example of a disciple in his conversion, in his way of life as a Christian, and in his mission. He is also, as we'll see today, a strikingly clear Reflection of Jesus Christ himself in some of the things he faced. He's not Jesus, but in his life and mission, he is a witness to Jesus and an effective one at that. So this morning, we're going to follow this witness, Paul, as he enters Jerusalem and engages the trial of his life. My approach will be to walk through the text And to explain what's happening here in the kind of first portion of the study. And then we'll conclude in a few moments with how Paul's witness in this passage serves as a witness for us. So we'll follow this witness in three sections. First, the witness prepared. And that's in chapter 21, verse 1 to 26. Second, the witness arrested. Chapter 21, 27 to 36. And then finally, the witness defended. Chapter 22, 1 through 29. So let's begin there in chapter 21. Seeing the witness prepared. The witness prepared. 
part of his preparation for coming into Jerusalem and what would happen there is that Paul is warned. He's warned. So look at chapter 21 as I read verse 1 to 14. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and next to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So as Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, you'll find in chapter 19, verse 21, that he understands he is going there sent by the Holy Spirit. And it is the same Holy Spirit that indicates to other disciples that once Paul gets to Jerusalem, things will not go well for him there. With this news then, Paul's friends in Tyre and Caesarea both urge him not to go. To Jerusalem, not to finish the trip. Now, nothing in this passage suggests that there was any contradiction in the Spirit's ministry. But there was a difference of what each party did with the information they received. In love for Paul, his friends sought to spare him danger or injury. In zeal to serve the Lord and be obedient as his faithful witness... Paul affirms the danger, but also decides in the end to head right into the fray. Paul was warned in preparation for going to Jerusalem. And once in Jerusalem, Paul was purified. Look at chapter 21, starting in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. 
And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should not abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. The last time that Paul and James, two apostles, were together was back in Acts 15 as part of a council to address the question over whether or not Gentiles needed to adopt the Jewish practice of circumcision in order to receive salvation. That council agreed wholeheartedly that repentance and faith were the marks of a true convert, and circumcision was no longer necessary. But now, at this reunion, it seems from verse 25 that everyone is still in agreement on that most important matter. The Jewish believers here are not raising matters related to gospel salvation, but about issues related to the Jewish way of life. James and company are concerned about the effect that false rumors will have on Paul's ministry in Jerusalem in the days ahead. People apparently were suggesting that Paul had been going around Asia on his journey telling Jews that they should leave all their Jewish practices behind. Well, Paul has not actually been doing that. Quite the opposite. But Paul had also not been keen to keep up his own Jewish appearances among the Gentiles. Something he may have been getting considerable flack for by Jews along the way. Now, in order to assure local Jewish believers in Jerusalem that Paul had not thrown out all their customs with the gospel, the brothers make a proposal. Paul should go and perform a ritual cleansing ceremony with these others who had made a vow, go with them, and do this maybe due to the fact that he had been away in Gentile lands. Something of a ritual purification from being among those who were considered unclean. So he could go with this group, pay for them, go through purification ritual himself. Then Jews in the city would know Paul was still for, in some sense, keeping to the Jewish way of life, even as he was also very clearly holding firm to the gospel. Now... As puzzling as this whole proposal might seem to us so far removed from Jewish customs or Jewish way of life, so too is Paul's agreement to go through with it as he does. He has every reason not to. He did not believe that the ceremony of Jewish rituals could cleanse a person from their sin. 
He had heard probably Peter's testimony that God had called the Gentiles clean through his saving work. No matter how well-intentioned purification rituals might be, they were no longer in any way effective to take care of people's hearts. On top of that, Paul had shown up in Jerusalem bearing a financial gift that he had been collecting from Gentile converts in order to be of help to Jewish believers. We learn about that elsewhere. Now, instead of celebrating the unity that they all have in Christ and receiving this gift with gladness, there's no mention of it, the Jewish brothers instead suggest Paul needs to put on a good face while he's in town. I don't claim to know everything going on here. Just trying to give us the highlights. But such is the single-minded desire of Paul to get the gospel to those who will hear. He is willing to be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. While insisting to both that only Jesus Christ can be their savior. Not obedience to a law. Not by remaining, if you're a Gentile, in your pagan practices. Paul must have thought it was a good enough idea to try. Though we're not told if he really thought it would help. So Paul now stands symbolically cleared of the demands of the Jewish requirements. Having gone to the temple for purification. He had every right to be in the temple. But as we'll see in a moment, that wasn't the real issue his opponents had with him. Paul was prepared for the trial. He was warned and he was purified. He was warned yet innocent of wrongdoing. The awareness of suffering that was coming did not keep him away because he came to Jerusalem to make Jesus known as his witness. And the lengths he went to win his Jewish brothers and sisters would not prove to be enough. Because those he came to did not receive his message. Instead, they arrested him. Which brings us to our second section. The witness arrested. Look at chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city. And they they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. 
It is a trumped up charge levied against Paul by the mob. A very similar one led to Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter 6 verse 13. And if the crowd had had their way that day, this altercation would have ended the same as that one. Paul wasn't actually teaching against the Jewish people, the Old Testament law, or the place of worship, the temple, as they claimed he was. Ironically, he was going out of his way to show deference to all these things. But the people accusing him have an agenda. His opponents actually weren't even from Jerusalem. They'd followed Paul from around Asia, verse 27 says. Some of them recognized Trophimus probably as a, as a fellow national from Ephesus. It didn't matter what Paul did or said. His actions were misunderstood at best or mischaracterized by false witnesses at worst. Now, as we've gone through Acts, we've seen that these riots are somewhat commonplace. So common that the Roman government set up a barracks next door to the temple for rapid response to riotous crowds. Jerusalem was a very volatile place. The Jewish people were not happy about being under Roman government. And their religious convictions so deeply held that they were not the type of people to sit silently by while their laws or their God was blasphemed. Deeply zealous. Even if they were deeply misled. Now, I imagine the tribune mentioned here, the the kind of leader of the Roman soldiers, had little patience for revolts and revolutionaries. As his questions to Paul suggest, in verse 37, he had seen or at least heard about failed attempts by supposed revolutionaries before. Let's read those questions now. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So apparently an Egyptian had led a briefly successful coup and rallied, as we understand from Jewish history, a couple hundred soldiers before Felix squashed the whole thing. The tribune took Paul to be attempting nothing more than that, maybe even the same Egyptian. He didn't anticipate Paul being a combination of Greek and Hebrew speaker born in a Hellenized or Grecian city, but also deeply knowledgeable about Jewish law. So maybe out of just curiosity or sheer surprise, the tribune allows Paul to address his accusers. And so we come and turn our attention to the third section. Paul the witness defended. Paul the witness defended. Chapter 22, verse 1. Here we hear Paul defending himself. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, 
born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So in his approach, Paul seems to take a two-part approach. He seeks to establish commonality with his listeners on the basis of their shared Jewish heritage. And then, and only then, inform them of the change to his own belief and practice due to his meeting with the risen Jesus Christ. To these crowds so seemingly zealous for the law, Paul seeks to assure them that he had been right there with them at one point. At one time, not too long ago, he shared their desire to accuse, injure, even execute anyone who seemed on the other side of the pharisaical interpretation of the law. Anyone claiming that a Messiah had come as son of God and son of man in Jesus Christ. It's wild to think that some of the people who honored Saul by throwing their clothes at his feet during Stephen's stoning were now, as we see, in verse 23, about to throw off their cloaks in an attempt to take Saul, now Paul's life. The reason for this monumental shift is the second part of Paul's defense. 
He was committed to persecuting followers of Jesus until, that is, he himself met the crucified and resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He spoke with him, saw the righteous one, heard his words. Now this will be the second of three times Acts records this testimony about Paul. Luke's repetition underscores how vital this conversion story is to understand who Paul was and what he was doing with the rest of his life. Now to a people deeply sensitive and receptive to the visions of the prophets and divine appearances in the Old Testament, theophanies, Paul must have hoped mentioning his conversation with Jesus would at least spark the crowd's interest. Dissuade them from their rage. Jesus told Paul that his rage against Christians was actually an attack against him. The risen king and the son of God. Paul must have been there to urge them not to continue what he had shown them by way of his sinful example. But turn as he had and follow the risen Jesus. Jesus demonstrates his power by blinding Paul and leading him to understand from Ananias, a respected Jew, that Paul would now serve to make Jesus known, no longer try to snuff out his witness. Jesus had a special mission for Paul to go and tell about his death and resurrection well beyond Jewish borders to the Gentiles who had yet to receive salvation. Paul must have prayed and hoped That upon hearing this, his Jewish colleagues would have finally realized that Jesus, the risen Messiah, changes everything. He is the law fulfilled that they were so concerned about. He is the one who comes to make a new people when the old covenant people had failed to come to God and bring him the worship he deserved. Jesus is the greater temple. The place where God dwells with man in spirit and truth, not in a building and in ritual worship that cannot forgive. But they didn't listen. They could not hear. Even though the evidence of Paul's dramatic conversion and commitment to Jesus definitely bore their consideration and yours and mine. At the mention of his mission to the Gentiles, the Jews seem to remember what they were so angry about, and the mob gets ready to slaughter Paul. Thankfully, there were others standing by who had come to Paul's defense. Rome defends Paul. Look at chapter 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? 
And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. The people who claim to be looking for the Messiah won't hear his witness when he speaks in his name. But the Gentiles, to whom this witness is now sent, hear in some small way and seek his defense. Now the tribune still does not have a handle on what it is about Paul that is making this crowd so mad. So he decides to whip it out of Paul, flog him or scourge him. This method of torture would often bring its victims to death or to the brink. So cruel it was. A group of whips with bits of metal and stone or bone affixed to the ends of each one was fastened to a pole. And the witness being interrogated was whipped until the punishment was finished. Or the so-called witness gave up the desired information. What the tribune didn't realize was that in the social hierarchy, Paul actually outranked him in a way. The tribune had likely bribed someone in order to become a citizen of Rome, but Paul had rights by birth. And as a Roman citizen, he was entitled to a trial to determine his guilt and was never to be dealt the scourge. That was reserved for non-Romans only. So this tribune now had... A Roman citizen on his hands, who he had no objective reason to punish, and whose mistreatment under his watch could now bring disgrace on him and his family. And so the tribune takes off his chains, but still detains Paul. We will follow what happens next in the trial in the coming weeks. So that's chapter 21 and 22. Paul warned. Paul arrested. Paul defended. In our last few minutes, let's consider now what all this has to say to us. If we are simply students of history, this is all, I think, if you like that kind of thing, interesting enough in order to learn about Greco and Roman and Judea relations in the first century. But Luke, the historian, writes this for more than just a history lesson. He writes about Paul, the witness testifying to Jesus Christ then, and as we read these chapters now, he witnesses to us about Christ today. There are two categories of people Paul addresses, that Luke addresses, as he bears witness to the life of Paul and life's mission as a witness for Jesus. Two ways Paul addresses us in his words and example. First, Paul is a witness to anyone here who isn't following Christ. Paul is a witness to anyone here who isn't following Christ. If you're visiting with us and you've never been so bluntly addressed in a Christian service, it's not to offend you. I actually hope it will spark some good conversations even after the service with you. Maybe someone has never asked you the question, do you follow Jesus, the risen king? Well, I aim and we aim as a church to be lovingly helpful to you in that. 
Because if he is Jesus, the risen king, then like Paul, his resurrection and rule right now has great significance on your life and mine. And here is what Paul's witness through God's inspired word says to you. You need to know Jesus Christ. Without him, any and all religious striving will come to nothing. You can be as certain and as sincere in what you believe, but if it isn't Jesus, this risen Jesus that you are following, you are opposing the king of kings. There is not a legal or ethical code that you can adopt that will lead you to Jesus or by another way around Jesus, as the Jews seem to hope. There isn't a special group to join that will get you eternal life. There is not a sacred building that you can frequent and attend or go on pilgrimage to that will take care of your sins. There is, however, a person. One person. Jesus, who we praised in coming to earth as a baby, is that person. Who grew up as a man. Who obeyed all the laws of God that you and I have broken. And in a strikingly clear way. Paul's trial gives you a picture. Of the trial Jesus Christ went through. In order to bring you and me salvation. Jesus like Paul knew that Jerusalem was ahead. And more than trials awaited him there. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 9 verse 22. That he must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Jesus, knowing that fate waited him full well, he still went. Luke nine fifty one. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he wept for the spiritual condition of the city because he knew what he was willing to do for them in giving his life. But that they, like those whom Paul addressed, were unwilling to receive what he came to give. Jesus stepped into the temple to purify it, needing no purification himself since he was faultless and sinless. The obedient son of God. He walked into the temple and purified it of the false religion and self-service that we often bring into our most spiritual of exercises by which we hope to gain God's favor. He warned that the temple that the Jewish people so revered would be torn down by an invading army. But he promised that since he himself had come, we now don't need a temple to approach God. We can live with God through Jesus. On the night of his arrest, Jesus prayed to his heavenly father, anticipating the agonies of what was ahead for him. But like Paul, he was more than willing to not only be arrested, but to die in Jerusalem. Because this was his father's will to bring salvation to you and me. So when the small band led by Judas came to take him, he went quietly. He made no defense. The Jewish council questioned him. They mocked him. They beat him. Telling him to testify to the truth about who he really was. Like the tribune did with Paul. But when Jesus told them he was the son of God. The promised one sent from God to save them. 
that he was the Messiah long awaited, they wouldn't listen. They would not receive his message. Instead, they condemned him. The Roman officials present at Jesus' trial, Herod and Pilate most significantly, found no fault in Jesus. He was an innocent man before the the rule of, of Rome, just like Paul. But in the end, they did not defend him. They gave him up to the murderous cries of the riotous Jews who shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. Before being hung on a cross, Jesus' back was not spared. It was not spared the scourge. He took every stroke of the whips. He received a type of punishment that no Roman citizen was ever allowed to receive. He died in dishonor and he died alone. Even up to the end, the criminal hanging next to him questioned him, goading Jesus to testify with his actions that if he really was the promised Savior, he should get himself off the cross and save the criminals too. But in his willingness to stay and die on that cross, Jesus was testifying and witnessing to you and me that he had come to be our Savior. We need his death if ever we are to be free of ours. Your sins and mine, they will kill us. God's punishment on Jesus demonstrates what he thinks of the wicked rebellions and actions that ruin the goodness of what he made the world to be and that we participate in and so doing ruin the good life he intended us to have with him. You deserve death for your sin. But Jesus, the innocent one, chose to die in your place. Three days after they put Jesus in the grave, the disciples came to his tomb and found it empty. Angels testified. They bore witness that he was not there. That he was risen, just as he said he would be. They were expecting death. They met his life instead. It was something some of them couldn't even believe unless they saw him alive. And they did. And then Jesus told them what the risen Christ also revealed to Paul. And now through Paul is revealing to you. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you. Friend if you are not following Christ. Paul is witness to you this morning. He encourages you. Ask Jesus to open your eyes to the truth of Christ who died and was raised and in gladness receive his forgiveness. Having heard his witness, become one who can now turn to other sinners and say, I have met the risen Jesus and you need to meet him too. 
If the Spirit of God is working in your heart to hear and believe this gospel, do not run from it. Welcome his voice. Submit to his call. Turn and follow him. If you want to know more about how to do that, I would happily talk to you after the service. Paul is also a witness to those who are following Christ. A witness to us in how to faithfully serve as Christ's witnesses in this world. I would encourage you to use the momentum of our praise of Jesus our Savior this morning to spill out this week into remembering how it was that Christ met you. How he intercepted you, Christian. How he blinded you with his overwhelming grace. And how he gave you mission and purpose unlike anything you'd known before. I don't think that we, like Paul, have all been appointed to take the gospel before religious councils or Roman emperors. That would be kind of hard. Paul had a unique place in history, set apart to be what he would call himself, the chief of sinners turned into the chief witness to the gospel. I don't know if there ever will be a threat on your life because you stood and boldly told people the news about Jesus they didn't want to hear. I suppose that depends on who you go to with the gospel in your lifetime. But I do think, even if Paul's witness seems larger than ours will be in scope or situation, we have the same task from the same Lord that he had. And Jesus promised to us that trials and hardships will meet us when we talk about him to people who won't want to hear us. Brothers and sisters, the choices we make about who we talk to Jesus about should be made according to what is true, not based on what others might do. Even to a crowd yelling for his murder, Paul wanted to be faithful to tell them that Jesus was alive and he would welcome them. Yes, he hoped to win some, but he must have known he wouldn't win them all. But even in that uncertainty and jeopardy, Paul told people about Jesus and how to be saved. I fear that my fear about what people will do to me often silences my mouth from speaking what is true. I know it's the case. If you and I have met the risen Christ, not in a vision, but in our hearts, if we can say, as we do say, and as we do sing, and as we do rejoice in that his power and salvation have forgiven us and given us eternal life, then we have something to say to the nations, no matter how far gone or far away they might be. If you think that means you should be a missionary, but you're not sure if you can, I'd say don't even worry about that right now. First priority is to begin telling people where you are about Jesus and then let God lead you where he and his will wants you to end up. So for most of us, this will continue to be here for a long time among our family members, among our friends, among our classmates, among our neighbors, among our coworkers. Jesus sends us to these people as his witnesses. Will our fears render us faithless?
Or will we learn from Paul's example that Jesus' name deserves to be proclaimed through us? We probably feel like we aren't nearly as strong or confident as Paul. So be it. Let's just name it and claim it. We're weak people. The answer is to seek God's help. And seek each other's help to compensate for our weaknesses. Pray and ask God for opportunities and for the courage to match those opportunities with people you know you're going to talk to this week. Pray with others in this church about the people you know you are afraid to talk to, but know you need to and want to. Pick up a resource like Two Ways to Live or Christianity Explored or other little resources like that that will help you grow in more effectively sharing the gospel with other people in these opportunities God gives you. So as I studied this this week, I struggled to figure out why Luke slowed down to give us all these details when he only covered Paul's previous miracles in scanty and swift treatment. But now it seems so obvious. Because witnessing with our words and our lives is what the church will keep doing until Jesus comes back. That's our mission. This is the universal mission Jesus sends every one of his followers on. And will this mission be one of constant fights and frustration and futility? Well, thankfully not. Paul writes to the Romans that the Jewish people here would experience judgment for rejecting the Messiah. They would have ears, but they would not hear the gospel when it was preached. This would partly be a consequence for their repeated unrepentance, and partly because God was going to send salvation to everyone else through their rejection. Such is the power and sovereignty of God. Paul didn't die at the hands of the mob because God ruled over the details of Paul's life and ruled over the details of every life. No matter how powerful and hateful to God someone might turn out to be, Jesus decides what will happen to his followers as they're faithful to him and no one else. Was Paul's life incredibly hard? Of course it was. His witness faced opposition we will never meet. But God, but Paul got to see people come to life in Jesus almost everywhere he went. And God willing, so will we. Paul's witness to all of us boils down to this. Jesus is alive. Believe in him. And live or die. Tell everyone about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Christ, we exalt you as the risen King of kings. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for making this known to us in our hearing even today and in our hearts by faith. Make us what you would have us to be. Change us from what we know we are into what it would mean to be faithful to your name this week. God, we long more than to have numbers of conversions, more than to keep record of our fruitfulness. We long to be faithful in what you, our king, have sent us to do. And we long to know that those who are lost have been found.
through the witness we carry. Make it so, Lord, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.